If, you, uh, if you've taken the Reconstructing Evangelism class that I teach here, or you have gone through one of our partnership classes recently, you've heard me share about the time I decided to be an atheist for three days. Uh, it was a time when I was a youth pastor at another church. Um, and even though it was only three days, it was a very real stint with atheism. And, and the reason I chose to be an atheist was because after growing up in a, in a loving Christian home, after being a youth pastor for several years, I found myself still struggling with sin. In fact, at this particular point in my story, I felt like I had become an even worse person since I had become a professional Christian. And I thought, this, this isn't how it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be getting better. And, and, and so on this particular day, when I was feeling particularly disgusted with myself, I reasoned that atheism was my only choice. You see, based on my circumstances and seeing my own darkness, something we talked about last week, as well as the darkness that was around me, I decided that either God was unable to change me and the circumstances around me that made sin so attractive, or he was unwilling to do it. I thought, I ask him all the time to change me. In fact, it, 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 my, whole, my whole career path hinged on me being transformed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. So if it wasn't happening, then he must not have the power to do it, which really meant he didn't exist. If God is not all powerful, if he's not powerful enough to change my heart and my circumstances, then he isn't a God at all. Definitely not a God worth following. And so either he was unable to do it or the other thing I thought about, which was actually more disturbing, was if he was able to do it, though, and he hadn't, he was unwilling to change me, then that was even more troubling because that meant he didn't care about me. That meant maybe he was just ambivalent towards me. So either way, if God lacked the ability or the willingness to change me, on that day I decided he would no longer be my God. And I walked away for three days. Have you ever questioned God's ability or willingness to do something? I know I'm not the only one. When Isaiah was prophesying to God's people, as we saw last week, it was a particularly dark time in their history. Isaiah was talking to people who were questioning God's ability and his willingness to do something for them. They were looking around at their circumstances and, and seeing the enemies press in on them. And not only that, they were also seeing themselves and they were seeing how often they struggled with sin, how often they went back to old patterns of life, even after God had delivered them time and time again. And so here they are in this dark time and they're saying, where is God? And Isaiah gives them an answer. He promises them a baby. In Isaiah 7, 14, he says, this will be a sign to you. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then he would go on to describe who this son would be. And in Isaiah 9, 6, the, the text, the verse that we're going to be looking at for this entire Advent series, 
Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall pee upon his shoulders, and, they, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And so last week, we looked at the name Wonderful Counselor. We looked at how Jesus lived into that name that was prophesied about him. And today we're going to look at the name Mighty God. How would a baby live up into the name Mighty God. Well, we just heard the story read of Jesus calming the storm in Mark 4. And I think this story is really a story about faith. In fact, almost every time that Jesus is in a boat with his disciples, the the subject of faith comes up. Why? Because being on the water is always risky. It's, It's a place where you can so quickly lose control. One of my favorite movies uh, is a movie called White Squall. Now, it it was made in the mid-90s, and it didn't do well in the box office, so you probably uh, have not seen it or heard of it. But it's a a true story about about a a, a school uh, that took place on a sailboat. Uh, The school was called the Ocean Academy, and the school took place on a sailboat called the Albatross. And in 1961, the boat was hit by a white squall. Now, a white squall is a sudden violent windstorm that comes without any warning. So you could be out on the water. It could be, you know, clear and beautiful. The sky could have no clouds in it. And then a white squall just appears. All of a sudden, there's this gigantic wave that appears before you. And so in 1961, this white squall came on this boat that had all these boys, all these school-age boys, and it was sunk. And down with the ship went the captain's wife, the cook, and three of the 13 boys who were on board. It's a really intense movie. And one of my favorite scenes in the movie takes place between the captain of the ship, uh, who all the boys call Skipper, and kind of the bad boy. The bad boy who shows up late on the first day of school, who really doesn't want to be there, who gives a lot of attitude And in this very first interaction with the skipper, the skipper puts his arm kind of rough around this boy's shoulder and he points him towards the ocean and he says, you know what's out there? Wind and rain and some mighty big waves, reefs and rocks, sandbars and enough fog and night to hide it all. So with a roll of the the eyes, this boy responds, So then why the heck do it? And the skipper says to him, it builds character, Mr. Preston, of which you are in desperately short supply. The kind you only find on mountaintops and deserts and battlefields and across oceans. You can't control the sea. The wind, the rain, the rocks, and the waves. So when Jesus is on the water, Like any good teacher, he uses that opportunity to build character. Now, storms in the Sea of Galilee are very common because of its geography. The Sea of Galilee, which is actually really a lake, but it's a very large lake. It's it's about eight miles by 13 miles. Uh, But this lake is surrounded by mountains and desert. And there's actually this gap in the southern range of mountains in which winds can come through really quickly and, and cause a squall. In 1985, um, in fact, the, uh, the Sea of Galilee got to a very low level. And during this time, archaeologists found a, a boat 
sunk at the bottom in the mud from the first century, from the time that Jesus was alive. And so we actually can, can know a little bit about what this boat would have been like that Jesus and these disciples were on. The boat would have been about 26 feet long, about seven and a half feet wide, and could, could hold about 15 men. And the stern of the boat, the back of the boat, the place where Jesus was sleeping during this storm is elevated, making it very natural for him to kind of be able to sleep up there, even though the waves are crashing over without waking him up. So let's imagine the scene. Here are the disciples. It's, it's early evening. They're making their way across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is asleep at the back of the boat on some kind of lumpy pillow. And then all of a sudden, thunder and lightning and, and this massive waves just pouring over the sides of the boat. Now, remember, most of these disciples were fishermen. That was their trade. That's what they did. They had probably for years been fishing on the Sea of Galilee. They were used to the storms that happened there. So for them to think that they were going to die meant that this was a pretty intense storm. I recently flew to California with our lead pastor, John Parker, uh, for a conference. And if you were to ask me if we almost died on that flight and did a barrel roll, I would say yes. John would say uh, he slept the whole flight. So um, I imagine that during normal storms on the Sea of Galilee, most of the disciples were more of a John type than a Zach type. But this was different. Because these disciples were scared for their life. They went up and they grabbed him and they shook him awake and they said, don't you care if we drown? Now, I don't know exactly how long it took Jesus to get up and, and wake up, but I imagine that he rubbed his eyes, he let out a yawn, and then he stood in a rocking boat, which itself is impressive. Uh, he stands and, and he takes a moment, looks around, gets his bearings, and he says, quiet, be still. And it happens. One commentator says a better translation would be shut up and stay shut up. Now, I was never allowed to say shut up as a kid growing up. And my mom attends this church, so I'm still not allowed to say it. But what the commentator was trying to get at was that to Jesus, this storm was nothing. That it didn't require anything other than a simple shut up. It was an annoyance at most. The storm's force was no match for Jesus. I want to read you a portion of Psalm 107. Uh, this is actually Psalm 107, verses 24 through 29. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves they mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wits end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. You notice them the amount of parallels between this story and Mark and this psalm that was written hundreds of years before. It's almost as if Jesus is living out this scene depicted in Psalm 107. And in the psalm, we're told it's God who calms the storms. So Jesus in this story is living into his name, mighty God. Now this shocked the disciples. 
In fact, we're told at the very end of the story, they look at one another and they say, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. He speaks and the wind stops. But not only that, it says the water goes completely calm. Even when the wind stops, the waves keep rolling. But here it becomes like glass. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. It's mighty God. It's the same God who the psalmist sang about. It's the same God who was hovering over the waters in Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It is the same God who ordered those primordial waters of chaos into the good creation. Now, I know some of you feel like you are in the middle of a storm right now. Maybe because of your own choices. And if you're honest, you knew this day would come. Or maybe you've been completely blindsided by it. You weren't expected to be in the place where you're at right now. And either way, you feel like you're drowning and, and God doesn't care. Listen, it doesn't really matter how unruly the forces in your life are. It doesn't matter how twisted up and messed up you think you are. Your chaos, your storm is no match for Jesus. Whatever problems you are facing right now, it would only require a shut up from Jesus. So now here's our problem. If he is mighty God, if he is able to calm a storm, to calm whatever we're going through with just a single word, what if he doesn't say that word? What if we find ourselves continuing to swirl around in the waves? Now for me a few years ago, when, when I wrestled with the idea, was God able but unwilling to fix my circumstances, there was only one possible answer that I came to. He doesn't love me. If it would be so easy for him to stop this, to stop this struggle and this pain, if it would be so easy for him to do this and he doesn't do it, he must not care about me. But you know what brought me back? And I came back because I wouldn't be here if I didn't. But it was the gospel. Without the gospel, a mighty God is only to be feared. But the gospel changes everything. It changes the way we look at everything, every circumstance in our life. Until we have re-narrated our story in light of the gospel, we don't know our story. Until we have let the gospel affect everything we think about as far as our past and our current situations, we do not understand the story that we're in. Because you see, the gospel forces us to arrive at a different conclusion for our suffering and for our storms. The gospel tells us that our suffering, whether it's caused by our own sin, which was the case in, in my crisis of faith, or it was the result of just living in a world that has been ruined by the fall, a world that is indeed dark. The gospel tells us our suffering, no matter what the cause was, can't be because God doesn't love us. 
that he is ambivalent towards us. The gospel says his unwillingness to fix our problems can't be because he's angry at us. God got as angry at you and me as he will ever get 2,000 years ago when Jesus hung on the cross. The gospel says we are so bad that the son of God had to die in our place, but at the same time, we are so loved that he, was, that he wanted to do it. So his unwillingness to calm your storm can't be because he doesn't love you. And it can't be because he's angry at you. A shepherd sometimes has to take the sheep and throw them into a vat of insecticide. The reason being is because there are certain times of the year in which the bugs will be so bad and the bites will be so numerous that the sheep will swell up, sometimes leading to the sheep's death. Now, when that shepherd grabs the sheep, it starts bleeding like crazy, just, just going, going completely insane, especially as it's being mis submerged in, in, the, in the insecticide. I'm sure if the sheep could talk, he would say, don't you care that I'm drowning? Now, what does the shepherd do? He can't explain it to the sheep. But just because he can't explain it in a way that the sheep would understand doesn't mean that he doesn't love the sheep. In fact, the shepherd being unwilling to do what the sheep is pleading for is actual proof that the shepherd loves the sheep. If you're a parent, uh, maybe you've had this situation. Um, you've had to say no to your child about something and their response is, why do you hate me? <laughs> and inside you are thinking, my whole life has been disrupted by your existence. And, uh, and most of the time, I'm glad for it. I, I've given you all kinds of things. I've sacrificed so much. I, I, I've given you time and I've given you money. I, I've tried to create fun memories for you. I've tried to help you live into whatever it was that God had in mind when he thought you up. And now that I have to say no to you about something, you assume that I'm not doing it out of love for you. But you can't explain that to them, right? They won't get that. I mean, you could try. So you have to say no and allow them to hate you for a while. The moments we feel we are drowning, the moments the storm is not letting up, is it not possible that someone who loves us, who is far higher than a shepherd is to a sheep, isn't it possible that the shepherd could even throw us into vats, submerge us, make us feel like we're dying when in fact he is actually trying to save us? Isn't it possible? Couldn't his no to stopping the storm really be his yes to loving us. The gospel not only makes this possible, but it makes it the only logical conclusion. Now, God is not the origin of evil or suffering. He did not author your tragedy. You did. Or the broken world around you did. But not him. Yet this dark world and our dark hearts will not keep God from accomplishing his purposes in us. Now, I can hear what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, what about the people in East Tennessee who, who lost everything this week because of the wildfire? Or, or what about the students who were, who were brutalized and, and traumatized by 
by the events that happened at Ohio State this week? Or, or what about the, the victims of Pulse or my coworker who just found out she had cancer? Or at 33rd, I, I, I know that, that Seth, your friend and your brother, has just been sentenced to 12 years in prison and, and he's not even with you anymore. And that's disruptive and it's hard. We can look around at all the tragedies and storms we see happening to other people and we could think that's not fair. If God were really good, he wouldn't allow this to happen. They don't deserve that kind of suffering. And there's no way that those people going through that will be able to say that God is loving them and that in fact he's shaping them for their good. Charles Spurgeon, my favorite preacher, talked about a sermon he once heard from his grandfather. And the sermon was titled, The God of All Grace. And the sermon was about how God would give grace to his people, all the grace that they would need. But at the end of each point, his grandfather would say, but there is one kind of grace you do not need. Spurgeon said everyone listening was so puzzled as to why his grandfather kept repeating that over and over again at the end of every point. He said he didn't know where his grandfather was going either. But at the end of the sermon, his grandfather said, the kind of grace that you do not need is dying grace in living moments. For you only need that when dying time comes. The point being, until you are the one in the storm, until it's you, until you're the one who's dying, you can't know the grace that is experienced in that moment. You may look at someone else's circumstances and determine there is no way that they could be encountering God's grace. But that probably has more to do with the fact that in living moments, you have no need for dying grace. So many of us stop trusting God because we see other people's storms, because we can't imagine a grace that we don't need. But let's say you're in the storm. Let's say it's you. You are in the storm. You're not just observing storms around you, but you are in the thick of it. Now, I've had far less suffering and trials and storms than I deserve, but I've had enough to talk about this very confidently. In every trial and tragedy that I have endured, I have been given grace that I could have never imagined as an observer. Every time. So what do you do in the storm? What do you do if you come to a place where you say, okay, mighty God, I have a God who is able, but he seems to be unwilling to stop this. And it has to be because he loves me. So now, so now what do I do? Let's look back at the story. After Jesus calms the storm, he looks at these disciples and he says to them, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? I think the word still says a whole lot. Do you still have no faith? Even though this occurs early in Jesus' ministry, he's already done a lot. He's already performed several miracles. He's already taught them the scriptures in a way that they had never heard taught before where, where it came to life. And not only that, he had chosen them, remember? He went up to these fishermen and, and he said, I, I choose you. I I want you to be a part of this. I I, I believe you have what it takes to be a part of what I'm starting here. He chose these men who no other rabbi would have chosen them. And if you read the Gospels, these guys, they get it wrong a lot. They're they're stupid at times. 
They don't seem to have a lot to bring to the table, and yet they were chosen by Jesus. So that should have brought them tremendous comfort, even in the midst of the storm. I don't, I don't know if y'all watch the TV show or Cryfest. Uh, this is us, uh, but I do. And, uh, and if you watch this week, um, if you haven't, it, gosh, it's awful. But um, uh, this, and this particular week, you, uh, if you haven't seen the show, uh, there's a dad and he has three children. And, and one, of, one of the children, um, they're all the same age. They, he, uh, they, two are twins and then he ado- and they adopted this one other child. And, and the dad's white and, and the child is, is black. And there's this kind of ongoing storyline uh, about the, the, the adopted son's struggle with identity. With, with knowing who he is, with knowing what kind of man he will be as, as, as a black man being raised by white parents. And there's this scene that happened this week between the adopted son as a grown man encountering his dad, but, but not his dad as, as he would be when this child's grown, but his dad uh, as he was when he was a child. And so you've got these two men who are approximately the same age in their mid-30s. And, and this son is able to tell his dad how he felt as a young boy growing up. And he tells his dad that he felt different and unwanted. And the dad grabs, grabs hold of his now grown son's face and says, I didn't just choose you to be my son. It was a fact that you are my son. This summer, we studied Ephesians, and at the very beginning of that letter, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Jesus coming into the world turned that choice that was made before creation into a fact. That's what it means to re-narrate your story in light of the gospel. Because Jesus came, You are a son and a daughter of God. The choice has become fact. See, there's so much in this little word still. This seemingly insignificant word gives us significant instructions for when we're in the midst of the storm. It's saying, do you not remember everything that's already happened? Do you not remember everything that that has already been accomplished? Do you not remember the fact that you've been chosen? Spurgeon says the disciples like us have very leaky memories. So if we find ourselves in the storm, we have to remember. We have to go back and look at the past, to look back at our story. And sometimes we need other people to help us remember God's faithfulness in times past. Maybe you need a father or a mother or a friend to look at you and explain to you what was really going on when you felt unwanted. There are days when when those doubts that I had a number of years ago uh, come back. Uh, And I hate those days. And I can just feel, I I can feel them um, in the morning. And and when I get into my office, sometimes I just feel them creeping right back in. And what I do when I do the right thing in those moments is I retell myself the story of me opening my Bible for what I thought was the last time 
Y'all, I was, I, was, I was going into work after three days of atheism, ready to quit my job as a youth pastor because you can't be a youth pastor and be an atheist. And so I was, I was going in to quit. And I thought, you know what? I should read my Bible one last time. And so I, I decided I would read um, where I had stopped reading when I became an atheist. And I just picked up right there where I stopped. And I opened up and I read from the book of Zechariah the most clear picture of the gospel that to this point I have never seen before. And when I saw it, I couldn't walk away. See, I could walk away from a mighty God. I could walk away uh, from a God who is all powerful, who is all in control. That'd be stupid because uh, he can calm the storm. But, but I could walk away from that. But I couldn't walk away from a mighty God who chose the gospel as the means of saving me. And so not only do I retell myself that story, but then I retell myself how a month after that, I was given my opportunity to preach for the first time in big church. And I started my sermon by saying, a month ago, I decided not to believe in God anymore. And, uh, and I thought, well, what, what the heck? I have nothing to lose, right? And, uh, uh, and, and I retell myself the impact that that had. I had no idea. I had so many people come up to me who thought they were bad Christians. They thought they were the only ones who ever had doubts like that. And it were people that surprised me. I had a seminary professor who went to this church who I was terrified to preach in front of. And he was in his 80s. He had written commentaries on every single New Testament book. And he came up to me after spending 50 years teaching and training pastors with tears in his eyes. And he said, thank you. Y'all, I didn't want to be a preacher. I liked being a youth pastor. I, adults scared me. Y'all still scare me. Like, it is, it's very stressful to speak to adults. But I retell myself that story because I realized in that moment that, that my story told truthfully is good news for others and that God was going to use me in ways that I never intended for him to use me. I never intended to be here filling this pulpit. And it all started with a storm in which I thought God didn't care about me. So when the storm comes, when I start feeling those doubts wash over me, I tell myself the story. So after you tell yourself the story, after you go back and you look at God's faithfulness, the next thing you have to do is you have to look at the object of your faith. You've got to examine your faith. The story ends with all the disciples looking at each other terrified. So they were scared while the storm was going on, but then they were even more scared when the storm was calm. They were, they were scared when they were unable to control the storm, but now they were much more scared because they were in the presence of one who could control the storm. See, faith in Jesus means giving up control completely. No one who ever encountered Jesus in the Gospels ever walked away from that encounter and said, well, now I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to try to live a better version of myself. No, every encounter with Jesus led to people either hating him or thinking him a fool or falling down on their face and worshiping him, completely surrendering to him. Jesus doesn't look at his disciples and say, hey, you need to be trying harder. He says, do you still have no faith? He's saying that their problem is not the effort of their faith, but the object. 
Jesus tells a story in Matthew 7 about a, a build, two builders and they build two houses and one builds their house on the sand and one builds their house on the rock. And then a storm comes and, and washes the house that was built on the sand away, but the, the house that was built on the rock stands. Why did he tell that story? Well, he's saying your foundation matters. And if you choose to build your foundation, if the object of your faith is anything other than me, it's going to be trouble. If you build your foundation on me, Jesus is saying, even if you love your career, even if you feel like you've got the career you've wanted your whole life, when the storm comes and maybe even takes the career away, you'll be okay. It'll be hard, but you'll be okay. If you've built your, your, your life on me, and you love someone and you love a relationship with someone and then a storm comes and messes it up, you'll survive. It might hurt. It might hurt worse than anything, but you'll be okay. Where is the object of your faith? Have you placed your faith in something that could be lost in a storm? Maybe the reason it's so terrifying to look at the object of our faith in the middle of the storm is because Jesus might actually say the reason the storm is killing you, the reason you feel like you're drowning, is not because of the storm, but because of where you've placed your heart. And lastly, in the storm you have to look at Jesus. If God really took on flesh and was born in a manger... We have something that no other religion even comes close to claiming. We have a God who understands us from the inside. Christmas doesn't explain all of the storms and the sufferings in our life, but it does show us that we have a God who entered the storms and suffering on purpose. Any doubt of his love for us disappeared the night God was wrapped in barnyard towels. Dorothy Sayers, a British novelist, said of Christmas, the incarnation, which just means that the putting on of flesh of God, means that for whatever reason, God chose to let us fall, to suffer, to be subject to sorrows and death. He has nonetheless, though, had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Christmas shows us that God had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Mighty God can exact nothing from man for that which he has not exacted from himself. Mighty God has gone through the whole of human experience. Mighty God was a son and a brother. Mighty God was a carpenter. Mighty God experienced the trivial uh, irritations of family life. Mighty God experienced the struggle to have uh, no money. Mighty God knows the pain of loneliness and betrayal and bullying. The one who would be called Mighty God became one of us. The one who would be called Mighty God would love us to the point of death. So when the storms come, and if you're not in one right now, when it does come, you can either walk away and hate him or think of him as a fool or you can fall down and you can worship him. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that, that you are a God who had the courage to take your own medicine. That when we're suffering, 
we can look at you and know, you know what this feels like. That, that you are not getting back at us. You're not getting even at us. You don't hate us. You're not ambivalent towards us. You know our pain. And for some reason that is good, you aren't stopping it yet. So, Father, I pray. I pray for those who find themselves in the midst of pain and suffering right now, that you would meet them with the grace that those of us on the outside watching couldn't understand. And Father, for all of us in this Advent season, as we prepare to celebrate the birth of Jesus, may we be reminded again and again that all the grace we need, you will supply. And we pray this in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.